0: peak it's great to be with you again my name is michael i'm one of the pastors here at the church at rocky peak and it's your very first time a special welcome to you but we're going to go into our time of teaching right now so i hope you uh you've got your bible you've got your uh, note sheet you've downloaded that if you haven't encourage you to do that you'll definitely need it today and so i'm going to pray and kick us off and then we're going to jump in let's pray together Father, we're just so thankful to be here in your name, in the name of your son, King Jesus, the resurrected King. And Father, we're so thankful for what you're teaching us in this series about the power of the resurrection, especially in times of crisis. And so Father, we pray that you'd come today by the power of your spirit, We pray that wherever we're meeting, like Chris just said, you know, maybe it's at the beach, maybe it's in a park, maybe it's in a home, at the kitchen table, wherever we are, we pray that you would be there as you are here with me and that together we would enter into your presence and experience your resurrection in a fresh way today as we talk about your incredible vision, this new community of the resurrection that you came to create. We pray it's in your name and everyone said amen. Men. Well, our story starts today um, at a kitchen table. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. It's a Saturday morning. And uh, frankly, he's fighting some depression. It was just about two weeks ago that he got the word that he was losing his job. This came out of the blue. He knew that layoffs was coming. His whole industry has been impacted and yet his supervisor kept telling him his job was safe. But now everything has changed. Two weeks ago, he was let go, and he's still shell-shocked. In the last couple of weeks, he's done all the normal things that you would do when you lose your job. He's freshened up his resume. He's gone online, he's made application at several places. He's talked to a headhunter but though he's excellent at what he does and has a great resume, the reality is no one is hiring in his field right now and he knows it. And he is beginning to panic. It's been two weeks, nothing's happening. Honestly, if it was just himself, if he was still single, that would be fine. If he was just newly married, still in the early marriage years, that would be fine. But those years are long past. He's married now, he's got three children, one mortgage, one car payment, the typical expenses of a family. They've got some savings, but it's only a couple months. And he knows if something doesn't happen soon, that they're gonna be in big trouble. And so on this Saturday morning, he and his wife are sitting at the kitchen table. He's trying not to think about the future, trying not to panic. And yet, he can feel that tightness in his chest as he's trying to distract himself. And that's when he hears it. There's a knock at the door. Well, today, we are continuing our series that we've been in now for the last five or six weeks called The Power of the Resurrection Hope in Times of Crisis. And if you're new here at Rocky Peak, joining us online, whether it's kind of locally or globally around the world, we're just so happy you're with us. We just wanna welcome you. This is a series about the resurrection of Jesus. And what we're learning is that the resurrection of Jesus kicked off a whole new era. And not only in the life of Jesus, and not only in the life of uh, kind of our lives and and all creation, but that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we, we step into a new realm and we begin to experience the power of the resurrection that's so important, especially in times of crisis. And so what we've been doing in this series is going back to a book in the Bible in the New Testament called the book of Acts. And we're taking a look at what happened right after the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came on the early church bringing resurrection power. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I'd ask you to open up, turn, turn with me to Acts chapter two. We're gonna pick off where we left off Last week, and there in your note sheet is a section called "The Power of the Resurrection: The New Community." so we're going to pick it up at chapter two and verse forty one but uh, before we jump in, I want to set it up. so if you've been here the last uh, last few weeks, you know that we starting with easter we we, we watched uh, the Luke describe in the Gospel of Luke the resurrection of Jesus. And and then he's explained to us what happened for the 40 days after the resurrection, leading up to the ascension of Jesus, where he returned to the Father. And then last week, we watched as, uh, just as Jesus promised, 10 days after the ascension, the Holy Spirit came upon the first followers of Jesus, and the impact was dramatic, and it was immediate. And on that day, on that day of Pentecost, Peter got up and shared his first post-resurrection message. He shared about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized. And so that's where we're picking it up today. So if you have your Bibles again, chapter 2 and verse 41, we'll pick it up there. So those who accepted his message, talking about the apostle Peter's message, were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so this incredible turning point in human history where God pours out his spirit, uh, on this new movement, as he'd promised. Um, and it's a turning point, uh, not only in the history of the world, but in their, each of their lives. And so they're all baptized. They uh, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And right away, there's a dramatic change that happens in their life. And so Luke goes on and he says, so right away, they devoted themselves, these, these 3,000 believers, they devoted themselves to four things. And I want you to underline that word devoted because one of the things the Holy Spirit does when he comes in our life, in fact, we we talked about this last week, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And one of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit comes in our life, he begins to give us passion for new things. And he begins to give us a passion to pursue God. He gives us a, a new love for one another and this new community of the resurrected king. And that's exactly what happens here uh, in the church of Jerusalem. And so they're gonna be devoted, they have a passion for four things. The first one is to the apostles' teaching. Now, if you remember, uh, or if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, you know, the way it ends in Matthew chapter 28 is that uh, Jesus is leaving and he calls his disciples together And he says, here's your assignment, here's your uh, commission. And he says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples or followers. And he said, the way you do that, the first step is when they come to faith, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's what Peter has just done, baptize these 3,000. He said, and secondly, you need to teach them how to obey everything that I have taught you these past three years. So catch that, he says says the goal is to teach them not to know, not to understand, not to be familiar with, but to teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. And so when the Holy Spirit comes on the early church, they have this new passion to know Jesus and to understand what does it look like to pursue him. And so every day they're gathering in the temple courts, as we'll see later, and the apostles are teaching them Uh, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And then the second thing that they are passionate about, the second thing that they're committed to is to the fellowship. Now, this is interesting. Uh, In the Greek, it's a very interesting word. This is a Greek word koinonia. And we've actually talked about this a while back. This is a word that speaks of a shared experience, a shared life, and what we're gonna see is that they're not only passionate to pursue God, they're passionate to love one another and do life together, and so he goes on then, the third thing that they were passionate about is the breaking of bread. Now, uh, Luke may be referring simply to sharing of meals. As we'll see later on in the passage, they were spending a lot of time together, they're not just uh, pursuing God together, they're just hanging out, spending time, sharing meals together in one another's homes. And this may be what he's referring to, uh, but it may be a reference to not only sharing of meal, but the breaking of bread as in communion, the Lord's Supper. And then he said the fourth thing that they're committed to is prayer. And we saw this, that while they were waiting for the coming of the Spirit, they were pursuing God in prayer. And this becomes an ongoing passion in the life of the early church, gathering together to pursue God. God, what are you doing? Uh, We want your kingdom to come, your will to be done. And they're gathering together for prayer. And so you have this new community that when the Holy Spirit comes, he creates this passion to pursue God and to love one another. But this passion to love one another is not just to be together, it's to share life in a very powerful way, even to the extent of sharing their finances for those who are going through hard times and in need. And so if you skip to verse 44, it says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Now, if you were to read that, it sounds like they just all sold everything they had, put it in a common pool, and they were living almost communally. As we'll see later, that's not quite the case. But what's going on here is there's this tremendous love that's that's leading to a rich generosity. And so in verse 45, he says, here's how it worked that they sold their property and possessions and they gave to everyone who had, and I want you to underline this, to everyone who had need. Can you underline that? To everyone who had need. We'll come back to it later. And so every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. So the temple in Jerusalem was a massive complex. It was three football fields, one side, five football fields long on the other, surrounded by huge, it's a fortress. Uh, scholars tell us that as many as 100,000 people could be in the temple courts, not inside the temple, but in the temple courts inside the massive walls. And along the edges, there were some huge porticos, uh, like think Greco Roman columns, picture this, uh, with a stone roof, so like covered outdoor patios that pre- created a great place for people to gather. Uh, And to be taught. And so every day, this was sort of their first worship center. Their large group experience was their meeting every day in in the temple courts. And it says that then they broke bread in their homes. So they're meeting large group, but they're also meeting small group in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at two snapshots, uh, kind of two, kind of two, two sections where, Paul, where, uh, where Luke gives us a window into the life of the early church. What was it like when the spirit of the resurrected Jesus came? What was it like to be there? This is the first of two windows. We see the spirit come, we see him create this new passion in them, a passion to pursue God in prayer, in the word, uh, apostles' teaching. Much like we gather here on the weekends or we once did, we're now gathering in our homes, but we're gathering for the the apostles' teaching. We meet in our life group to study the apostles' teaching. We spend time with God one-on-one to learn about the apostles' teaching so we too can learn how to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. right, So they're pursuing God in the word, in prayer, perhaps in communion, but they're also sharing their lives, sharing meals, loving one another, deep connection, and even to the extent of sharing their finances. So that's the first window, all right? Now, I want you to flip in your Bible or turn in your app to chapter four. We're going to jump to chapter four, where Luke gives us a second window into life in the early church. We're going to pick it up, at verse 32. And so he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. So tremendous unity. said, so no one claimed that any other possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And again, that sounds kind of carte blanche. We'll see in a second, not quite exactly what, what, what you might uh, think on first reading. Um, But he said, uh, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, so they're sharing Jesus, and God's grace, I love this, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And so he said, well, how did this really work? If they're not just like uh, selling everything at once and putting in a pool and then uh, all living communally, how did it work? And in verse uh, uh, middle of verse 34, Luke says, well, here's how it worked. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, and then they would bring the money from the sale. So notice, they didn't like sell them all at once and put it together, but from time to time, as there was a need in the church, God would grace the hearts of some of these believers who had resources, and they would sell some property, sell some land, sell a house, and bring it and give it to the apostles, and they could distribute to those. And I want you to catch this again. They, in verse 35, they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had what? right need who anyone who had need underline that again right so so here what we have in is in these two passages is luke is giving us a couple windows into life in the early church what happens when the holy spirit comes, uh, what are the new passions he ignites in their heart, and we see that, we see these, these twin passions of pursuing God uh, to grow together and then loving one another in this amazing community, but one of the most amazing things about this love was it wasn't just hanging out, it wasn't just praying together, they were actually taking care of one another in time of need financially. And so from these two passages, I want to highlight three principles today that flow out of them about uh, this, the kind of God's vision for generosity in his body. Now, Today, the topic on the table is not generosity for the kingdom, like like giving to parachurch organizations or supporting the church at Rocky Peak. That's not it today. What we're focusing on is on God's vision of generosity within the new community where we live out a life of love by... Uh, by taking care of one another in time of need. So I want to highlight three principles that flow out of this passage and then come back at the end and ask one uh, important question that especially applies as we continue to navigate the challenges of this new season we're in with the coronavirus. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Power of the Resurrection, The Gift of Generosity. So let's, uh, let's jump in. So the first principle that flows out of this passage, fairly, uh, these two passages, fairly obvious, is that Jesus' vision is a culture of generosity. And Jesus has a vision for this new community of the resurrected king, and then his vision is to create um, a community that has a culture of generosity, right? and, that's, and so you see that pretty obviously in these passages. Now, Uh, One of the ways that Luke described this was in chapter four. I told you we'd come back to it. I reprinted it there on your note sheet. In chapter four, this is how Luke describes what the Holy Spirit was doing. He says, so God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. This is so interesting to me. This is such an interesting way to describe it. He's describing the coming of the, of the resurrected Jesus the res- in his spirit into his people. It creates this amazing culture of generosity, but the way he describes this supernatural move of the spirit is with the word grace, that God's grace was so powerfully at work, there was no needy. Now this is interesting because I don't think this is the way I would have described it. I think I would have described it like this, that God's power, was so great, was working so powerfully that there was no needy. And I realize in English that might be sound redundant, but often in Greek you'll use the same verbal, like a a verb form, an adjective form, an adverb form of the same word. And so I think I might say it like that: God's power was so powerfully at work. Or I might say it like this: That God's spirit was so powerfully at work that there was no needy. But that's not how Luke says it. He says God's grace was so powerfully at work. And I don't think this is an accident. Uh, I think it's very intentional. And here's the reason why. That in the Greek language, there's a very close connection, kind of a, a, a verbal connection between the words grace, the word gifts, and the word generosity and a lot of overlap like let me give you an example Uh, about 25 years after the church starts in jerusalem the apostle paul is going to be writing a letter to one of the gentile churches that he started in southern greece in the in the city of corinth now about a year before he writes this letter Uh, He had challenged them that he was was sponsoring, kicking off a major fundraising effort, kind of a generosity initiative to raise financial support from all his Gentile churches that he had started to help the poor Christ followers, the Jewish Christ followers in Jerusalem, like a thousand miles away. And so when Paul had first shared this vision that God had given him, they were very excited in Corinth. In fact, they began to give to it right away. They made pledges that they would give to more in the future, that they'd start saving up. And when he came back, they would have more money. And so they were totally into it. But now time has gone on. They've kind of lost the vision. And so one of the reasons Paul is writing to them is to challenge them again to listen and follow what the Holy Spirit's doing in their life and to regain the vision that they lost and to inspire them to listen to the Holy Spirit, he shares with them what God is doing supernaturally in the Christ followers to the north of them in the province of Macedonia. And he shares this, he says, it's amazing. He said, the believers up there are going through a time of intense persecution and it's really affecting them economically. And so they, they don't hardly have any money. They're going through a lot of poverty. But he said, but when we share this vision, we didn't expect them even to give, but they, they not only gave, they gave more than we ever could have imagined and they gave with great joy because God catches, God graced them. Supernaturally, and they responded to what the Holy Spirit was doing in their life. So I want you to look at this. There in your note sheet, this is how he starts his uh, this section of the letter. He says, "And now, brothers and sisters, talking to the church of Corinth, we want you to know about the what? Yes, about the grace. Circle that. Underline that. About the grace that God has given. God was gracing." these believers, just like he graced the first believers in supernaturally, creating this generosity in their hearts. And he says, so now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches to the north of you, that in the midst of a very severe trial, heavy persecution, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, Weld up in rich, what? Generosity. And so Paul said, one of the ways that Paul talks about the way the Holy Spirit works in our life is how God will grace us supernaturally by his power that would lead to new generosity. And in this passage, he goes on to talk in 2 Corinthians 8 about Jesus who's the ultimate model of generosity. That he who is rich, became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. And so this is God's vision for our life that we would be transformed to be like Jesus and that we would grow in this grace of giving, this grace of generosity. Now here's the thing. Luke, the author of Acts, was very close with the Apostle Paul. They're very close friends. In fact, they traveled together on one of Paul's missionary journeys, his second kind of Jesus-sharing expedition. They're very close. And as you read through the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that uh, for Luke, that uh, he has the utmost respect for the Apostle Paul, that Paul's a, a hero of the faith for him. And you know how this is when you listen to your favorite pastor or maybe a radio teacher or an author that if they deeply impact your life, you often find yourself using their expressions, using their phrases to describe what God is doing in your life. And I think that's what's happening here, that Luke, writing the book of Acts, many years after Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 8, that he has picked up the language of his spiritual leader. And so it's very intentional here That in, in Acts chapter 4, when he talks about, how God graced these believers so powerfully that there was no needy, that this is his way of describing the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see is he's giving us this message that Jesus' vision for his resurrected community of the king is this vision for a culture of generosity. And of course, you see this as you go throughout the New Testament. And we just watched it in 2 Corinthians eight, we just talked about Paul sharing this vision with all of his Gentile churches and calling them to live out a life of generosity as he raises support for these poor Christians a thousand miles away that they've never even met. But we see it in other places in the New Testament as well. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, I want to give you two examples, and they both involve the church at Ephesus. So, uh, so for example, the, fir- the first example uh, comes, uh, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about Ephesus. So, Ephesus was the, uh, either the third or fourth uh, largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, Scholars tell us it had a minimum of a quarter of a million people. Rome probably had about a million. And so it was a very influential place. It was uh, strategically located in what we call Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And it was a very strategic place, uh, kind of a gateway from the Eastern Empire into the Western. And so It's probably for this reason that the Apostle Paul spent longer in Ephesus, about two and a half years, than any other place that we know of in his ministry. And, uh, and so after Paul had been there for a couple of years, he had to finally leave, he said goodbye. And then years later, he, uh, he, he was in the area, not super close, but kind of in the area. And he, he sent a message to the leaders of the church at Ephesus for them all to travel to meet him at the seacoast town of Miletus in Acts chapter 20. And the reason he wanted to meet with them is the Holy Spirit had made it very clear that this was the last time that he would ever be able to see them and so he wanted to shepherd them one more time and call their leadership and challenge them to lead the church well. And so when they arrived, it was a very tearful, very poignant encounter because they, they had been with Paul for two and a half years. They loved each other well. They were all there crying on the beach when he had to go. But he gives this powerful challenge for them to shepherd the church of God that God has entrusted to these leaders in the city of Ephesus. And in that passage, he, he challenges them in several ways about how to lead for the future. But one of the things he challenges is to make sure that you're carrying out the vision of Jesus to create this culture of generosity in the church at Ephesus. And so, there on your note sheet, there's a, this uh, pass, section from, uh, passage from Acts chapter 20. And so, uh, when Paul had been in Ephesus, so those two and a half years, He had chosen uh, not to receive any financial support from the churches there. Uh, Not because he didn't uh, deserve it or had a right to it as their spiritual leader, he did. But in this, as they're coming out of a pagan culture, he wanted to model a couple things to them. He wanted to model, first of all, the importance of developing a great work ethic, and then he also wanted to model financial generosity. He wanted to earn his own money so he had something to give to those who are truly in need. And so he's, he says to him at the end of this, uh, this challenge, he says, you yourselves, talking to the leaders, He says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. That I, when I was there, I worked as a tent maker and I supplied my own needs. I I didn't receive any financial support. He said, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, so he's modeling that work ethic, we must help the whom? Who, Who does he say? I want you to underline, to help the weak. In other words, those who cannot work to provide for themselves, and he said, remembering, and now it's interesting, he's gonna quote a passage, a statement of Jesus that we only have here. We don't have it in the gospels. He said, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, the path to the good life is the path of generosity. And so Paul challenges these leaders. He said, hey, as you move into the future, uh, make sure that you're working hard to listen to the Holy Spirit and to create a culture of generosity in your churches. You'd be teaching people to work hard, but not just to support themselves, but to have something to give to those who cannot support because that's the model that Jesus gave. That's the vision Jesus has for his community. And then the second passage, as also involves the church at Ephesus. So after Paul left, he's gonna leave there. He's gonna to go to Jerusalem. He's gonna get arrested in Jerusalem. He's gonna be in, in jail a couple of years and he's gonna go and uh, sail to, to Rome as a prisoner. And once he gets to Rome, he's gonna write a letter And he's gonna write a letter back to the church of Ephesus and the churches in the area. And when he gets to chapter four, he's giving a a, kind of a long series of instructions about here's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to live out this new Jesus life. And when he gets to chapter four and verse twenty-eight, he says this He says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. So in other words, uh, he said, I know some of you come from a a background of crime. You've come to Jesus from a criminal background. And so you need to knock that off that as followers of Jesus, we don't steal. And so he said, but they must work, right? Like like he's modeled with his own life of work ethic, doing something useful with their hands. So find a job, find a trade, find an occupation that makes a difference and, and plug in work hard. And he says, but catch the reason why they are to find a job and work hard. He says that they may have something to share with those who are in what? Right, in need. Underline it again. It's the third time we've seen that phrase today. Right, so Paul says, as a follower of Jesus, you need to take a whole new approach to your finances. You need to take a whole new approach to your career. He says there's basically three approaches you can take. The first approach is you can steal to live. The second approach is you can work to live. But the third approach is to work to give and that's the Jesus mindset. This is his vision for his new community. Those followers of Jesus, we would pursue God, we would love one another, we would share our lives and that would even extend to helping one another financially during hard times Uh, with a spirit of generosity, all right? So that's number one, The Jesus' vision is for a culture of generosity. Now, that's the first point. It's the longest point. The next two will go much faster, but they're uh, also important. So number two, number two goes like this, Uh, and we're not gonna spend a lot of time here, and in a way, you'd almost think we wouldn't need to talk about this, But whenever I speak on this topic of generosity, whenever we talk about what the Bible says, I think it's always important to be really clear on what the Bible is saying and what it isn't saying. And so the principle goes like this The generosity, according to the Bible, is for those in need. And this is why I've pointed out today three times, we saw it twice in Acts, once here in Ephesians, that that when, when Jesus calls us to a life of generosity, it's for those in need. It's for those who are weak, to use the words of Paul in, in Ephesians 4, those who cannot provide for themselves. In other words, that when Jesus calls us to create a culture of generosity, he is not calling us to support those who are irresponsible or those who are unwilling to work. In fact, what the New Testament would teach, what the Bible would teach, is that when we support people, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are not willing to work, not willing to look for a job, uh, not responsible with the resources God has trusted, that when we do that, it's not actually an act of love that actually we are enabling them and it's actually having a crippling effect on their life and keeping them from growing up to be like Jesus, to develop a strong work ethic and then out of that to grow a life of generosity. Now, this what you say, is this an issue? Yeah, it is, because in the body of Christ, there are always those who will try to be uh, kind of a lazy, or be irresponsible and look to others to support them and claim the Bible, said, hey, this is what Jesus wants. But what we see, even in the New Testament, this was an issue and the Apostle Paul had to address it. For example, in the church at Thessalonica, for whatever reason, and there's some reason we won't go into this, but for whatever reason, there were some Christ followers there who were not willing to work, but they wanted the body to support them. They wanted the church to support them financially, though they were not willing to work. And so Paul challenges them this, and in chapter three of Second, Th- Second Thessalonians, he said, for even when we were with you, and earlier Paul said, hey, when we were there, we worked with our own hands, we modeled this, we taught you this, but then he gets down to the key point and he says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, that the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. In other words, when someone claims to be a brother or sister of Christ, um, and they're, they're coming and looking for the church or the body to support them financially, but they're not willing to work, Paul says don't do it, don't rescue them, uh, don't, don't save them. for that. That is not an act of love. That what love looks like is a tough love that helps them to understand Jesus' vision for their life. And Jesus' vision is that they would learn to work hard and they would give generously. And so the second principle is that generosity is for those in need. Now the third principle goes like this, is that generosity is a test. Generosity is a test. And you say, a test of what? What's a test of our love? It's a test of our willingness to listen and follow the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's a test of how we respond to the grace of God in our lives. Look, let me give you an example. Uh, earlier today, we talked about this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this generosity initiative. Uh, some of the best teaching on the, in the whole Bible on this whole topic of generosity. And uh, in fact, in our live groups this week, you'll be studying uh, parts of these passages. Um, but in there, he says, listen, uh, I want, I'm just challenging you to listen and follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. And when he gets to verse eight, he says, I'm not commanding you. In other words, as an apostle of Jesus, I could just command you to give, but that's not what I'm doing. I don't wanna command you. What I wanna do is just challenge you to listen and follow what the Holy Spirit's putting in your heart to give and that you would respond and give as he leads you. And if you do that, things will it'll all work out great. And so he said, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test, catch this, the sincerity of your love. You're saying you love Jesus. You're saying you love these people. Well, then the test is, are you willing to act on that? Generosity is a test. The Apostle John will teach us something similar later on. You know, in, in John chapter 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that by this, all men will know whether you're my disciple or not by the way you love one another, sort of a, a test of your love. And that so impressed the, the, uh, the, the Apostle John that he can hardly write anything without talking about the priority of love. And in his little letter of First John, he says this in 1 John 3. He says, this is how we know what love is. You know, we often ask the question, what does true love look like? He said, well, this is how you know what true love looks like, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In other words, true love is sacrificial. True love serves. True love gives. And he said, and therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Well, what do you mean, John? What would that look like to lay down our lives, our brothers and sisters. Well, let me give you an example. He said, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister, catch this, in need, there it is again, but has no pity on them, doesn't take any action, he says, how can the love of God be in that person? And in the context of First John, what he's saying is, how does how can that person even claim to be a follower of Jesus? And then he goes on and he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth, right? And so when you look at the early church at Jerusalem, you see, hey, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and fills his people with the resurrection power of Jesus? What you see is that the Holy Spirit creates a new passion, a passion for God, a uh, compassion for one another. He creates a a passion to pursue God and a passion to love one another and and not just in words, um, not just in speech, not just gathering to study the word, not just gathering for prayer or celebrating communion, not just even sharing meals from house to house, but truly loving one another in a way it leads to in time of need true, rich generosity. So the question is, this leads to a question then for our life, and I think it's an especially important question, especially in the midst of this crisis we're currently facing and the challenge it will create in the coming months for us uh, as a church. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Power of the Resurrection, The Challenge. And so I have a simple question for you as a follower of Jesus Ah, uh, if you've given your life to Jesus, a very simple question. And the question is, are you growing in generosity? We've seen today that when the, when the Holy Spirit, when the power of the resurrection of Jesus, his spirit comes on the early church, that it creates this, not only this desire to pursue God, but a desire to create true community, a community that shares their lives and even at times their finances. And so the question is, as you follow Jesus, do you sense yourself growing in generosity? Do you sense the Holy Spirit leading you to share with others in times of need? Do you sense God gracing you to to give to others when there's real need? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, Earlier today, we looked at Acts chapter four, where Luke explained to us how this works, you know, that in the early church from time to time when there was need, someone would sell some property or land and give it to the apostles, right? Well, right after that passage, Luke uh, gives us a case study of a particular man who's going to become very important in the movement of Jesus that's gonna be documented later in the book of Acts. And so he, he gives us the big picture principle. This is how it worked. Then he says, now here's an example of someone that, uh, that sold some property, right? And so I want you to see this there in your note sheet. He says uh, in chapter four, this is what we read already that from time to time, those who owned land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales, put the apostles' feet, it was distributed to those who had need. So we've read that. But then right after that, he introduces us to this this man who's gonna become a key player in the story of Jesus. And he says, sort of a case study. He says, Joseph, this guy named Joe, that he's a Levite, right? So he's from the tribe of Levi, he's a a Jew. And he's from the island of Cyprus, right? So we don't know um, if he just grew up there and then moved to Jerusalem. We don't know if he's a Levite, he's working sometimes at the temple. We don't know how long he's been in Jerusalem. It's possible he just came for Pentecost and then uh, the Holy Spirit came and he just stayed on. He didn't want to miss what was happening. But um, anyway, he says that the apostles changed his name. They, they had a nickname for him, like Barnabas or Barney, uh, which means son of encouragement, right? He was just such an encouraging guy. So he says that, that here's what he did. He's one of the men who sold the field he owned, and then he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. So he says, this is how it worked. From time to time, people would sell somebody. He said, let me give you an example. He introduces us to this guy who's gonna become important later on. So he just, one verse, that's it. But later on in Acts, Barnabas will become friends with a man named Saul of Tarsus, Right after his conversion, he later will know him as the apostle Paul. So right after his conversion, he meets uh, he meets Saul. At this point in time, like uh, no one is willing to trust Saul. He's been a major persecutor of the church. But Barnabas takes him in and introduces him to the church leadership at Jerusalem and vouches for his true conversion. And later, and so they, they start this friendship. Later on. Um, uh, 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 Barnabas will go to Antioch. Uh, He he rises in leadership there. He will recruit the apostle Paul to come and help disciple new believers. Paul then becomes a major leader in the church of Antioch. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas will be called by the Holy Spirit to leave their leadership role at the church of Antioch and go out and share the message of Jesus. And so they go out together on what we call Paul's first uh, missionary journey or what I like to call his first Jesus-sharing expedition and they have a tremendous impact right and so when we get closer to that time where where this partnership begins to pay off uh Luke wants to introduce us reintroduce us to this man Barnabas who just gave us his little cameo appearance way back in chapter 4 and when he introduces him in chapter 11 this is what he says he says This, he says, Barnabas, he says, this is how he describes him. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Remember what we learned last week? We asked the question, how full are you? This man was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. And so we meet this man who's gonna become incredibly important, but early on in his story, way back in Acts 4, Luke wants to introduce him with this act of generosity because way back there, when he was not yet famous, he was not yet an important leader, but way back there, we have this window into his heart that Barnabas was a man who was being led by the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was a man who was being transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus. Barnabas was a man who was being graced in his life. He was one of those who was graced so powerfully that there was no needy. And he was listening and following to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And this becomes a window into this man and who he becomes in, this powerful leader in the early church. It's a great case study of this journey that a man goes on as he listens and follows the Lord in the area, this important area of generosity. So the question I have for you today is are you, you growing in your generosity? Are you listening for the leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you following? When there's opportunity and God is gracing you, are you responding and saying yes? Are you becoming a Barnabas? Uh, you know, I think, like I said earlier, this is going to become important for us as we move into the future here at Rocky Peak. You know, here at Rocky Peak, we have uh, many people that have not been impacted at all by this current crisis financially or not in a significant way. We have some people who've lost their jobs and everyone in between. And I believe that God is going to call us as a church and he's going to lead us as a church. And he may do it corporately in a, in a kind of a, Big like a generosity initiative. I know he's already doing it one on one. I've heard the stories where we are responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and we are meeting the needs in our body. And it just means some so important for us that we continue to listen and follow. And you know, it's a beautiful thing when the body of Christ listens to the vision of the resurrected King. And Gives generously to those who are truly in need as an act of love. You know, we started the day with this story of uh, this this man who's at home on a Saturday morning. It's 11 o'clock. Two weeks before, he'd lost his job unexpectedly, been promised he wouldn't be laid off, but now he is. And though he's doing all the normal things that you would do, posting his resume and talking to a headhunter. The fact of the matter is, the situation is just not looking good. The industry he's in has been hard hit and no one's hiring in spite of the fact that he's got a great resume. They don't have a lot of resources saved up, maybe a couple months. And so on this Saturday morning, as he and his wife sit at the table, the kitchen table, he's just trying to, to not give in to despair, to not go to a bad place, not go to what if. And it's at that minute that they hear a door, a knock on the door. They look at each other, they're not expecting anyone. They think maybe it's a neighborhood kid selling something, maybe it's a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon coming to the door, they don't know. And so he goes to answer the door. Now this is a true story. And I have to admit I've changed a few of the details, but it's a true story and so, uh, when he went to the door, he was so surprised that there was a, a couple, there were some good friends of theirs in their small group at the church. And so they just said, hey, you know, we're just wondering how you guys have been doing. We've been praying for you. Just wanna stop by, just encourage you. And they invited them in, had some great time just talking and praying together. But when they got done with that, this couple that was visiting said, hey, uh, what are you guys doing today? And they said, we got no big plans. They said, hey, we'd love to take you shopping. And, uh, and they said, no, you don't need to do that. No, no, we just really want to do that. You know, we, we just want to bless you. Would you just let us do that? You know, we love you guys. And they finally agreed. So the four of them, they all loaded up in the minivan. They went to Costco and when they got there, their friends told them, hey, listen, we just want you to take a couple carts, fill them up with whatever you need. We just want to bless you. We just know, you, we know you're going to be facing some tough times. We just want to bless you. And so they did. If I remember the right, the, right, the amount came out, today, it was like six or $700 worth of groceries. And they paid for them, they took them back, they loaded them to the ceiling, they all went home, they unloaded them, and they just told them, we just want you to know that you're not gonna be alone. You know, this is a really tough time, but we wanna go with you, we wanna go through this with you, we wanna pray with you, we wanna be there with you. And we know that we can't meet all your needs, we can't solve all your problems but here's what we wanna promise you is that during this time, we never want you ever to worry about having food on your table for your kids. They said, so here's what we wanna do every two weeks. We wanna pick you up, we wanna to go to Costco, and we're gonna load up again. And we're gonna do that until you get, till you find your new job. It's a beautiful thing when the body of Christ catches the vision of the resurrected King and allows him to transform our hearts, that we would grow in generosity, we would do it with great joy, we would learn, like Jesus said, that it's better to give than to receive. And he would use us to be a conduit of his love that would be such a witness to the world that is in Jerusalem, the Lord would be adding to their number every day. And so as we continue on in these uncharted waters, I just wanna challenge you that you would simply be listening and following you would understand Jesus' vision for your life and for vision for us as a church and that we would be open to the grace of God and that when God is leading us we'd be quick to listen and follow and meet the needs of those in our midst who are truly in need. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we just thank you for your blessings in our life and your vision for our life. We thank you that when you came, you didn't simply forgive our sins and then leave us and we wait till heaven, but you poured out your spirit, the spirit of the resurrected king in our lives, that we might rise with you to a new life, that we might grow, that we, we would learn to, to become more and more like you, that you who are rich, who became poor, that we through your poverty might become rich, that, that we, the spirit of Jesus, the resurrected king would be rising in us. And so, God, we pray right now. We pray for those in our midst who are going through hard times. We pray for those who are out of work. And Father, we pray that you would meet all the needs in our body. And we know that many times, Lord, you wanna meet those needs through us. And so we pray you'd give us eyes to see. You'd give us a heart that truly cares. We pray that we would be a church that loves one another, not in speech and words alone, but in actions and in truth. And we pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit in us in a fresh way, that we would experience just a growing spirit of generosity as we become like our king who said, it is better to give than it is to receive. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.